Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to a discussion about Victorian values. And I am joined yet again for the for the third time in a row. Uh, BB Dade, also known as History Bro, also known as Bo, also known as Encyclopedia Botanica. I've <laughs> well, heard that one before. <laughs> I made it up just before we started. But no, you, you do have uh, quite an impressive knowledge of history. Oh, and cool. uh, I, since um, you started working here, I don't think I've ever um, gone away from asking you a question about history where you've not had something interesting to say. So I'm sure this is going to be very good. And uh, basically the plan is we're going to go through and read quotes from prominent Victorians in their own words to figure out what their values were. Of course, we have already got our own ideas, but um, we're going to hear from them. And I'm not necessarily going to say this is the what they meant exactly. You know, we're going to interpret what they mean. Um, and you can do the same at home if you want. And we're also going to uh, be announcing the names first. So if you want to um, test your knowledge of prominent Victorian figures, uh, British Victorian figures, you're going to be reading out their name shortly before saying, you know, what they were known for. And it can be a little bit of a, a, a trivia thing on the side as well, because I actually found that I knew lots of these people already. And I was quite surprised that I had this massive backlog of Victorian figures in my head. I mean, I'm probably not the most typical person. I've you know, I, I studied history up until university at least and basically grew up with it because both my parents were interested in it. So perhaps there might be an element of that. Maybe it's not as easy as I thought, but it's a good bit of fun on top of what we're already going to be doing, which I think will be fun in its own right. Mm. So to start off, I think uh, one of the central things about uh, Victorian era is, of course, the monarch, uh, which is still important to this day. But I think that attitudes towards the monarch were very different then than they are now in that the monarch was seen as far more significant partly because they did more um, as a significant part of it but let's hear from Queen Victoria herself who of course lends her name to the Victorian age so this is uh, her words the Queen's name is not only the symbol of the country's greatness, but also the guarantee of her liberties and this was a speech at the opening of Parliament in 1854 and it, it, this one's quite obvious as to uh, what she means, isn't it? In that the, the monarch is meant to act as a, a safeguard against the tyranny of parliament, which is probably why she mentioned it in parliament, right? <laughs> and it, there's a, a good reason for that because of course the, the English Civil War. And of course that was divided between parliamentarians and monarchists basically, wasn't it? Yeah. Um... One thing I would say <clears throat> is that by the age, by the 19th century, by the age of Queen Victoria, mm -hmm. the monarch had very little power, like no real power. Yeah. Really. I mean, they, may, they certainly were revered more than they are today. Yeah. But, um, and sort of on paper, nominally, they're the, they're the head of state, the mm. head of the church, uh, but they're not the head of government. So, no. For example, I don't know if you're aware of this, but when Victoria was young, because she came to the throne quite young, very young, really. She did, yeah. Um, and lived a long time, therefore her reign was very long. But towards the beginning of her reign, before she even got married, um, there, a couple of times she tried to sort of stick her oar in, tried to get involved in politics a bit, tried to argue with her prime ministers about sort of the direction of government, like a very, very in a very, very minor way. Mm. And um, immediate, like, immediately they were like, wait, this is a constitutional crisis. You don't get to say anything. You do as you're told. We bring papers in front of you and you sign them and that's it. 
and she sort of, she tried to put her foot down a tiny bit and just got completely bullied out of it. Just completely bullied out of it. Mm-hmm. Like the politicians made a big deal out of it in the papers, like constitutional crisis. And anyway, in the grand scheme of things, she just absolutely lost that battle of wills. So just to say that, we no, they no, do think of the a mon- good thing to say. We do think that the way people thought about Queen Victoria at the time, I would I would say with with a lot more veneration than we think of the monarchy now but yeah, that's the actual power the, case. Mm. Like the ability to set policy okay was yeah that was sort of already long gone by victoria i'd say okay yeah no, no. i mean that there, there was a scandal if you remember that the black spider memos mm, in right. reference to uh, then prince charles charles uh, charles <laughs> Not Adrian Charles. Um, Prince Charles um, was writing to government ministers trying to influence policy, and it was a big scandal. Mm. And he was basically writing letters just suggesting stuff to look into. Mm. And um, that was seen as a sort of uh, unconstitutional thing to do. Mm. And um, it was reported on Guardian by Guardian types quite a lot. Just like, yeah, look at what the monarchy's doing. They can't help but stick their their nose into politics where it doesn't belong Mm. and things like that. So... I think that a comparable thing has happened um, in my lifetime, at the very least. Yeah, there is a small comparison there. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. It's like even the Prince of Wales, like, don't really have a public opinion. You're mm. not really supposed to have a public opinion. We'll tell you what the speech is for the opening of Parliament every year, and that's it. And you, we, we will trot you out for state occasions when we tell you that's it. Don't have any real opinions on policy or anything. And if you do... Badly well keep them to yourself. <laughs> um, especially if you're the actual monarch. You know, mm. it's a bit less of a problem if you're uh, just one of the dukes or one of the minor princes or something. Because you certainly haven't got any power. But if you're the monarch... There are expectations that you conduct yourself in a certain way, aren't there? At least technically, you do have loads of power. So don't be seen to be wielding it. It's almost yeah. like... the. The, pa- the opportunity to wield power is there, but the expectation is that you don't touch it. It's almost like a, I, I don't know how to call, how to refer to it, but there's a certain dignity that it espouses the monarch that they have the choice to wield power in theory, at least, but then choose not to. It, mm. I I can't really put my finger on it, but I think it's a notion that isn't necessarily unique to me, if if you know what I mean. Do you know what I'm getting at there? Yeah, yeah. I mean, going back long before Victoria, of course, there's the the glorious revolution when we, well, there's the civil war of Charles mm-hmm. Stuart, Charles I, and Cromwell bested him. And then after the restoration, when we kick out the Catholic James II, we have the glorious revolution, 1688, and bring over William of Orange, where there's some sort of constitutional settlement where the king really ultimately just does as he's told by parliament. And then a fairly slow erosion of power after that, up to the point where George III, um, during the age of Napoleon, it really sort of really, really slipped away. This is my opinion here. Different historians would have maybe a slightly different take. But during the reign of George III in the Napoleonic era, when William Pitt was prime minister, the early Napoleonic period, that's where, for me, the monarch pretty much lost all power at that point. Because mm. George III still... He did sort of get involved in things and like dismiss a whole government. Was he and insist the, the on George that was minister. known as Mad King, yeah, Mad George. King George? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And he would from time to time sort of insist on a different prime minister and things. And after a certain point, by the time of Pitt, Pitt the Younger, that is, um, 
he was just like, no, no, you're, you're like, he wouldn't, obviously wouldn't say this, but he's like, no, you're an idiot. <laughs> no, I'm not going to do anything you want. No. no. I imagine he probably put it in slightly kinder terms <laughs> yeah. than that, going to the king, you're an idiot. Yeah. He goes, no, well, we'll have a civil war then, mm. which you're definitely going to lose in hours. It won't even come to any shots being fired. You will lose the political battle straight away. So no, I'm not going to do anything you want. Be quiet now. Again, not in those words. Um, and so by the Prince Regent, George IV, the next one, he was a true puppet of power. He didn't have any real, like, actual proper, proper power. Mm -hmm. And that's, so that's a um, good couple of monarchs before Victoria, so. She was um, kind of carrying on in that vein then. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Mm -hmm. But, you know, still held in massive regard, though. Oh, yeah. Like, um, couldn't be on a higher pedestal still. She's held um, up as one of our, our great, monarchs really isn't she hmm. and um considering she didn't really have a role in a lot of things going on it's more just it, it is a sort of figurehead just yeah, like look true. at look at how good britain was under her reign not necessarily attributing um causality to her it wasn't her actions that made us as great necessarily i'm sure there was some influence there to a certain degree but um yeah it was certainly in parliament's hands wasn't it Oh, yeah, absolutely, yeah. I mean, she, it's one of our golden ages, the Victorian mm -hmm. period. That's part like, of the reason that I doubt, wanted to really. talk about the Victorian age because there, there's got to be something about the people and what they believed at that time that made it a golden age. I, It's my belief that you have golden ages. Obviously, there are still um, external factors, like if there's, there are natural disasters or, you know, a cold spell or something like that. Like um, you had, what was it? in the around the time sort of between the fall of the roman empire sort of and attila wasn't there massive global cooling i mean that really limited uh what people could do because then all of a sudden agriculture was very much strained and so you are bound to the circumstances of your time but also the the values and the virtues of the people at the time defines what makes a nation great in my opinion hmm. and that's part of the reason I was so keen to look at this because this was the peak of the largest empire in in history yeah and so there's got to be something there to <laughs> and I, I personally think I draw a lot of my or I can trace a lot of my sort of values my morals my my manners and etiquette to the the Victorian era because um, I think part of it might be because I've got quite an old family like um, my great grandparents were alive in the Victorian era so I had sort of direct contact with my grandparents who would tell me about the lives of their parents and so I've got basically second-hand accounts of the Victorian era and that obviously they, they would quite often because I was young tell me stories that would have some sort of moral twist to them that would reflect the values of the time. And so mm. these sort of formative things shaped how I think. And I think for a lot of people, there's still that connection there, isn't there, of um, we've inherited these values to a certain extent. Some of them have trickled down, some of them haven't, but they still have an effect today. It's not like we've completely changed. There's this thread throughout history mm. that has been continuous. And I think that's partly due to passing these sorts of things down through families. And I think it certainly depends on your family. It might not be the case for some and not others, but um, perhaps for those who are a bit more reflective about um, 
their what their parents believe, what they believe, and what is good for, say, their children and grandchildren, they may well have been more inclined to pass these sorts of things on. And that's why they still have an effect today, I think. Yeah, no, definitely. Like, uh, my grandparents were sort of Edwardian, just about. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, they would have been their parents. They would have been raised with sort of fully Victorian values, truly the real mm. deal Victorian values. Yeah, no, absolutely. This is the thing I'm about to say now is a very broad point. Um, but we live in the shadows, in the shadow of the Victorians, very, very directly, in we a very, very do, real, yeah. direct way. Um, there's a great book by Jeremy Paxman I read quite a few years ago, called, just called The Victorians. And uh, I've read other things along the same lines, saying the same sorts of things, that um, the, the 20th century, because of course Victoria died in, like, what, 1900 or 1901 or something. So yeah. just, just inside the 20th century. In the Edwardian period, um, you know, her son, Edward, Bertie, Dirty Bertie. Um, you know, <laughs> even in the World War I times, all the people that are adults in World War I era, would, their formative years would have been in the late Victorian times. Mm. So in a sense, you can say that even the first quarter of the 20th century is very, very Victorian in all sorts of ways. Ed, the Edwardian period is just an extension of the Victorian, late Victorian mm. period. Um, and the... Largely the Industrial Revolution, mostly, the, the main portion of it, happened or accelerated hugely during Victoria's reign. And, the, well, the 20th century is, especially the first half of the 20th century, is very much, uh, kind of obviously, um, just a continuation of the 19th century. So, when you look back, when historians sort of look back, again, with a very broad stroke of the brush, you look back at the period before Victoria, if you look back at sort of the Regency period, again, George IV, um, um, the Prince Regent, we look back at the age of George III, he had a very, very long reign as well, very long, decades and decades and decades. When you look back at that period, it's sort of like a different world in all sorts of ways. Mm. And then you look at the Victorian world and it's almost modern. They're yeah. pretty much the same as us in, in loads of respects. Mm -hmm. So it's like there's a watershed moment in history. Um, and... Uh, yeah, we're just like almost like neo-Victorians in a way. I think that's a, a uh, good way of putting it, isn't it? Um, because yeah. I loads think of it, our values. I think mm. especially sorry, just one last thing to say. Especially our values, just the way we look at the world, the way we think. Um, the Victorians were modern in that sense, um, and we're just their inheritors. Mm -hmm. I mean, everything you've said there, I, I think, is very true. Um, I, I think. Certainly, for some people, you've you've got more of an inheritance than others. In that, it, it very much depends on where you grew up, who your, who your family were, perhaps even um, which social class you belong to. Because I've met many sort of upper class people, which I certainly don't count myself among. They, they live a very different life to me. Um, they pretty much have an, a, a marked difference in how modern they are in the, the sort of post-World War II sense, in that they struck me more as almost being sort of true-blooded Victorians, but alive today, some of them, <laughs> in the, how they dressed, um, how they talked, the literature they read. There, there was a certain appreciation for that era, and I think that might be born of private schooling as well, in that it probably has a better focus on our, our golden age, and it's probably more patriotic because it's not... 
filled with subversive left-wing teachers that want to undermine British greatness. Mm. Mm. Yeah. But um, moving on to another quote by Queen Victoria, and I, I wasn't really sure what to make of this one. It's, the important thing is not what they think of me, but what I think of them. And this is, of course, in reference to her subject. Right. Okay. So I, I, I don't really know what she's getting at there. And I wanted to kind oh. of put it to you if you had an, an idea, really. I've not heard that quote before, but what I would say, I think we said it in one of the last contemplations very mm -hmm. briefly, just when you mentioned in passing that we might be talking about Queen Victoria. Yeah. And I said, I think she's probably, uh, I think she's a horrible person. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, yeah, she was extremely arrogant. <laughs> And pig-headed <laughs> and rude and bullied all of her children mercilessly their really? whole lives. Yeah, yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah. That's horrible. She was horrible to her own children in loads and loads of different ways. Um, yeah, and like deep, deep into their adulthood. A few of them sort of broke away and eventually just had enough. Uh, but some of them never were able to. And she kept them under her thumb, uh, browbeat them and was horrible to them. Um, lots of people say because her upbringing, her formative years, her childhood was crazily strict. Her mother, Queen Victoria's mother, was re like really, really horrible. She treated her daughter, Victoria, terribly. They brought her up in this um, the, the, the fashion where just absolutely every moment of your life is observed and there's like the strictest of rules about everything. That sounds familiar. Um, uh, but to sort of sort of a crazy degree, or to, what to a, our mind would seem a crazy de degree. Um, and so even in the 19th century, it was crazily old-fashioned and outdated way of doing things. But that's because, yeah. how she was raised. Mm -hmm. So she sort of tried to do something similar with her own kids or just mm -hmm. insisted on um, a very, very, very high level of formality at all times. Mm -hmm. Because that, it's worth mentioning, you know I read chapters from Hartley in part two of The Manners and Etiquette. His notion of how to treat children is very different from what you're um, explaining there, in that he was saying, well, treat your children with kindness and they shall repay you in old age. You, you should delight in pleasing them. It should be what you kind of set out to do with your life is to make raise them into good people good people who you enjoy their company mm. and and it was basically that notion i thought that was lovely i think mm. yeah that's exactly mm. what i'm probably going to do if i ever get around to it um but yeah it's strange to think that the figurehead of the country was doing the complete opposite of that and yeah. it, i think it does go to show that there is lots of variance in victorian beliefs it's not a uniform thing like people talk of oh um, in a in a conservative society, which I think is fair to say, Victorians were socially conservative, weren't they? Oh, yeah. uh, certainly by modern standards. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but th they seem to talk about it like everyone just had the same opinion, and then there's there's social harmony because everyone agreed on everything. They were the same terms, and that's simply not true. Mm, there's mm. social harmony because people appreciated social harmony for its own sake. That's why it was important it was seen as an integral part of being polite and good-mannered it wasn't because they all agreed it was just that they had the good sense if they did disagree to approach it with a bit of integrity and that's what we're lacking it's not uniformity mm. it's individual integrity basically i think mm. Mm. i mean queen victoria certainly had that she was 
uh, true to her own rules. Mm. I think she was an extremely cold fish, shall we say. <laughs> extremely cold, humorless, famously very humorless. Sometimes I've seen one or two um, documentaries or like fictionalised drama things where they try to make out that she wasn't. But every real account I've ever heard, she was she was absolutely humorless um, and of course she after albert died she mm. just spent the rest of her life decades in mourning in black here yeah. yeah just didn't stop mourning uh, albert for like what 40 years or whatever it was um so uh yeah i she had some funny ideas as well like i've never seen that quote before but i, mm-hmm. I totally believe it that's the sort of thing she would say mm-hmm. like she didn't believe in female suffrage for example i'm going to be getting on to oh, that okay but no, we're so, going to be talking about suffrage at one point. So some of her views, or quite a lot of her views, mm-hmm. um, t- again, to the modern mind, but even in her day at the time, people were like, well, that's sort <laughs> of overly straight-laced and formal and conservative and a bit like, to the point of being a bit weird, a bit out of step with the times. Mm. Um, but yeah, an interesting person, certainly an interesting person. I don't think I'd particularly, I don't think we would enjoy her company, though. No. Well, I mean, I, she would view me as a commoner, right? She'd be looking down her nose at you all t- at all times. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I've got no. <laughs> I mean, there's no. I mean, I've got to go very, very far back in my family history to have any claim to any any titles. So, yeah. well, just because you're in the royal family, you don't have to do that. Like, for example, mm. Bertie, her son, was famously affable. He was famously a great swell to be around. It was. <laughs> it, he'd throw parties all the time and and be jovial and joking around and be very uh, at ease with. With everyone, really, it, no matter what how, level of society you were from. Um, so perhaps, quite possibly, probably, it seems, doesn't it, as a direct reaction to his mother. That, that can knows, often be yes. the case. Sometimes you, you can get children that are the polar opposite to their parents. And I, I know that my, my own father is a good case, um, not to get too personal, but, you know, he was raised in rural Scotland in kind of quite impoverished conditions and supposedly not very clean either. And he's very, very strict on cleanliness. So clearly his upbringing there basically poisoned him against being unclean. Like, uh, it wasn't always the most fun growing up because if I left like a a teaspoon, which had a little um, bit of tea on it, (laughs) it would be like the end of the world. Just like, what are you doing, Josh? Standards are slipping. Who do you think you are, man? <laughs> no, it wouldn't um, be that strong. But yeah, being I, hyperbolic. I think quite often, well, you either don't you either just completely copy your parents, or mm-hmm. you grow up as a reaction to them. I think you can also yeah. kind of be in the middle and pick and choose stuff, like yeah, as long as you're yeah. a bit introspective about it, right? Yeah, yeah. I know, for example, um, again, without getting too personal about it, my father had a policy to never hit us. My mum didn't mind. My mum would slap the back of our legs or give us a thick ear or whatever, but nothing like a beating, mm. n- nothing remotely close. Anyway, my dad would n- would never said would would never hit us in any single way, shape, or form. I think because, that's a really good thing because yeah. he had a relatively brutal. His father, World mm-hmm. War Two veteran, there's stories of when he would beat the kids with a stick and stuff. So, you know, some people, mm. they just take that and do that themselves with their own kids. And other people are like, well, I will never do that then. I I'm, know what that means, so I'm never going to... I'm gonna, very much in gonna... that latter camp, I think. Right. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah it's, a, it's a different world, isn't it? Well, yeah, I, I don't think you, all you do by hitting someone is make them resent you. Yeah, yeah, right. 
So you're not achieving any aims. It's actually mm. just personal weakness, if, especially if you hit a child. If, mm. if you fail to control a child and you hit them in retaliation, well, what does that say about you? But that was also common in the Victorian era, that sort of discipline. It's sort of almost martial in its nature, isn't it? It's, it's like the, of, of course, martial punishments were physical as well at the time. Mm. Yeah. Like getting flogged, something yeah. like that. It's funny, actually, I don't want to spend too long on this sort of thing, but there's a story of when the Prince Regent, George IV, went to Eton, was educated at Eton, and uh, even he, obviously the Prince of Wales, when he was naughty, they'd string him up by his ankles upside down and whip him. <laughs> really? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, yeah, the idea of mm. martial, uh, yeah, corporal punishment, don't care if you're the Prince Regent, of one of the biggest empires, or perhaps the biggest empire that has ever been. You're one heartbeat away from being the head of that. No, you're, we shall whip you into shape. It's as simple as that. It's like, whoa, okay. Well, there is a reason that whip someone into shape is a phrase, right? Mm. It, it mm. comes from a literal mm. uh, background. Obviously, it's a metaphor now, or at least I hope so. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, it's, that's a really interesting anecdote. I'm amazed. It is amazing. Um, you would have expected that they would arbitrarily punish one of their friends or something and make them feel even worse. I imagine that would be very effective. I know I would rather take the punishment myself if I was guilty than them punish one of my innocent friends, but that would be another way of doing it. I'm sure that did go on throughout history, didn't it? I, I, I know there's an example, but it escapes me at the minute. But that's not what we're focusing on anyway. No, right. So one final quote from Victoria, and this was in a letter to King Leopold I of Belgium. Um, cool. uh, and it says, I'm very happy and contented, but the difficulty in filling my place with the proper dignity is that I am only a queen and not an angel or a goddess. So it might indicate that she felt a bit inadequate, mm. which is interesting to me as well, because... She's hailed as, you know, one of one of our greatest monarchs, but she seemed to have some doubts about um, her ability to fill those shoes. Definitely. A couple of things I'd say. One, she had quite a dim view of women in general. Yeah. They were the weaker sex. Mm -hmm. but there's no question. That's just true in her mind. Mm -hmm. um, they're not as capable as men. They should defer to men. That's the correct thing to do. And secondly, yeah, obviously had a chip on her shoulder. That Again, that's how she was raised. She was raised that you... You sit down and you be quiet and you do as you're told and nothing more. That's your role in life. Seen and not heard, as the, right. the phrase goes, right? In a very, very strict way. Don't have one hair out of place. Don't move a muscle out of, out of place. Or don't you dare think of it, sort of thing. So mm -hmm. crazily strict. Uh, so she held herself throughout her whole life to, as I say, very, very, very high standards. Like it does. unachievably high mm -hmm. standards. I had quite strict parents and uh, I find that it makes you hold yourself to standards that are simply not humanly possible. And it, it does make you beat yourself up about it. I've obviously since been a bit more reflective about it and just like, yeah, maybe I should treat myself like I'm a human being rather than... <laughs> like, there's no one harsher on, on me than myself. Like that's, that's part of the reason why I can do this job and have people send horrific messages to me on the mm. internet is that, yeah, I, I've probably thought worse about myself than you could possibly say to me. <laughs> so there's, no, there's no, nothing you can do. So it's good. It gives you a thick skin, motivates you to do well, but it, 
it as it seems to have done here with with Queen Victoria, although obviously my upbringing was not as strict as hers, <laughs> of course. But um, yeah, it does seem to fill people with self doubt, which isn't necessarily a bad thing. I mean, yeah, I mean, I think there's a balance to be struck. There is, yeah. Because I was raised uh, not like that at all. Mm. I was raised mostly, not entirely, of course, because there is a balance to be struck. Of course, no, uh, know your place and don't show off, don't have a big head. But also, you can do anything. You, you are great sort of thing. You know, some people, mm. some people raise their kids, again, within reason. There's strict uh, boundaries. But, um, like, the world is your oyster. You can do anything. You can be anything if you try mm -hmm. hard enough. Um, don't doubt yourself. There's no re reason to doubt yourself. And so I never really had any sort of... Um, like self-hatred or anything or any sort of any m massive doubts i wouldn't necessarily like call it self-hatred uh, or um, just doubts yeah. self-doubt um yeah i've been sort of blessedly free of that i sort <laughs> mm. of know my own limits and sort of comfortable with them i suppose but it must be a real cross to bear to think that you're never ever good enough mm -hmm. um and for a normal person that's one thing Imagine being um, extremely uh, powerful or extremely... I mean, the, the weight of the entire nation on your shoulders, yeah. The weight of the world, in a way. Yeah, well, that's very true, particularly towards the end of her reign, yeah. A global spanning empire, because you mentioned it, didn't you, just then, mm. about how big the empire was. Well, the British Empire, at its zenith, it had a couple of different zeniths, in my opinion, but probably the main one, just in terms of pure surface area <laughs> under control, is it, during Victoria's reign, um, arguably when we under George III, and we still had North American colonies. But, um, yeah, a, an empire where the sun never set. There was somewhere in the world at all times where the sun was up. So truly, truly globe-spanning. You know, dwarfed the Roman Empire at its height. Mm. The, the empire of Alexander was hardly anything. Laughable, to, even. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, risible compared to the British <laughs> Empire at its height. Like, so sort of a mind-boggling... Was it something like a quarter, mm -hmm. or between a quarter and a third of the whole globe um, was pink? It used to be in, in Victorian days. The British Empire on a map was coloured pink. So you could look at a map and see, and just at a glance, see how much of it was pink. And that was what. Is the there crown any particular reason why it was pink? Because I, I've know, seen actually, one or two and I've not really clocked. I, I just thought it was a stylistic choice. I didn't realise it was like, sort of a standard. I don't know. I, there must be a reason, but I don't know, mm -hmm. I'm afraid. Okay. Sorry to put you on the spot. No, no. no but um, moving on to another prominent Victorian, and that is Benjamin Disraeli, who was a Conservative Prime Minister. And he was he's also um, our only elected Prime Minister to be Jewish as well, mm. which um, I didn't actually know about him. Um, but he says about the queen, the place is not inhabited by a mortal, but a semi-divine being walks its halls. <laughs> Which, um, to my mind, is a bit much. And this is kind of harkening back to the divine right of kings in my mind, isn't it? It's saying that they are the monarch because they have been appointed by God. Which, even by the Victorian era, was probably quite an outdated notion, right? Particularly yeah. considering... You know, the events of the, the Civil War kind of shows that, well, they're not that divine, are they? I hope you enjoyed that segment from Contemplations, my series. And if you want to watch the full conversation, which that was taken from, all you need to do is sign up to our website for £5 a month and you can watch all of the content we have there. Thank you very much for watching.
and goodbye.